looking at early intervention, if you have symptoms that are bothering you, going through all of that is really helpful early. So don't wait until you're on your hands and knees with symptoms and crawling in or until your periods have stopped. Come in when you're symptomatic. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Noreen Turley and today we'll be talking about all things menopause. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Kiva Hartley, who is a GP and she's specialising in women's health and the menopause. And Dr. Hartley is also the clinical lead of the Complex Menopause Clinic in the Rotunda Hospital. I also have with me Dr. Kleena Murphy, Clinical Director of the National Women and Infants Health Programme in the HSE. And Kleena is also a consultant, obstetrician, gynaecologist. I just have to say that I am delighted to be doing this podcast because... Just saying, I may be a lady of a certain age and every conversation I have with my friends and my book club, my sisters, my mother is about the menopause at the moment. And it is fantastic that we're discussing it. But I did find when I was trying to go into more detail preparing for this podcast, there is so much information and it's really quite, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that some of the information may not be a trusted source of information. So I think we should start at the beginning, if that's OK with you. And I just want to ask you, what is the menopause? <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> so, OK, so the menopause generally is when the periods stop. OK, but okay. from a medical perspective, a woman is menopausal when it's been 12 months since her last period. So obviously the problem with that is you're looking backwards. So the symptoms of the menopause may start before then. So th that is where the difficulty is, really. It's it's very clear when a woman is 52 and she's had a year with no periods that she is now in the menopause. Sometimes people ask, well, when does the menopause stop? And, you know, it's really a time period in life. The menopause occurs and then it continues after that. And people think it's a defined, you know, few months, etc. So it's not quite like that. And the difficulty is for some women, they will have maybe a few years of symptoms coming up to those you know, 12 months. For others, they may not have that many symptoms. So it is yeah. very variable. But yeah, the medical definition, if you like, is, you know, 12 months with no periods. But the lived experience of each woman can be quite different around that time. So yeah. the average age in Ireland is about 51. The average age in other countries can be slightly lower, you know, so okay. it can be in, in some Asian countries, it can be 49. So there is, is variance among different cultures and, and, and yeah, countries. So it, that, I think that causes a lot of confusion for people because there is no defined age. And Kiva, if I ask you then, why does the menopause happen? Okay. Why do we have to go through this? <laughs> oh God, that's a good question. <laughs> why? It's so unfair. Isn't it? it is so unfair. Well, it's part of reproductive evolution, I guess. And what we know is that through your reproductive years, you start with puberty and then you start generally ovulating once a month on average, unless you're pregnant or on birth control pills or something like that. And when we get to perimenopause, which is the few years before your periods actually stop, and that's when we start to see hormonal change happen. And it's really characterized by large fluctuations in oestrogen production. So yeah. our oestrogen, when we get to our final period, our oestrogen production from our ovaries stops. And that's what creates an awful lot of the symptoms that we hear women reporting at that point. But the few years before your period stop, that oestrogen starts to really fluctuate. And at times you're actually overproducing oestrogen and that creates symptoms as well. But in the background, what's really happening within your ovaries is that you're not producing as many follicles at the beginning of each cycle. And that's part of normal ovarian ageing for most women. And that loss of ovarian function, that's you know eventually what leads you to your final period. You're not ovulating anymore. It's the end of reproduction, yeah. natural reproduction, and the end of producing oestrogen from your ovaries. And that's what creates menopause. Why it happens, I suppose, is more to do with, you know, evolutionary biology and that mm. kind of thing. I don't know, have you ever heard of the grandmother hypothesis, which is a theory? Well, I'd love if you tell me. <laughs> so there's a theory that not reproducing naturally after a certain age allows an uh, older generation to assist with a younger generation who are then having children. So it's kind of this tribal effect of yeah. um, protecting and and helping with new babies and, and children. And that, that kind of leads, it's better for the overall, for society in general, if we have this kind of family 
effect in yeah. terms of raising kids and protecting a family unit, if you like. And from okay. an evolutionary point of view, that was beneficial. And we see it in other animals. So they, they talk about like whales. God, we're really going a bit off road <laughs> here, right? But, no, but that's okay. But it's re- I think it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So they're the only other animals we know of that actually live long past the cessation of, of natural reproduction. And you see that a similar kind of family unit happen and a similar assistance with raising young. So there's a theory that that's maybe from a biology point of view why it was beneficial and why it has stuck around. Oh, well, thank you very much for that. I never knew anything about that. There you, you go. Know, yeah. Um, <laughs> but menopause over the last couple of years and maybe like I say I'm a lady of a certain age so maybe I'm noticing it more but I do feel or I do think that we are speaking more openly about it and we are having more conversations about it and do you think we should even start talking about it earlier in 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 somebody like it should it be in schools should it be in I do think so. I mean, I think the conversation is happening at the moment, but the conversation is is often happening, you know, among women and among women of a certain age. Whereas, in fact, we all interact with families, partners, husbands, children. So often I think the education in schools, you know, focuses a little bit on, you know, periods for for girls and how not to get pregnant, (laughs) etc. for for both sexes. So maybe a little bit wider because their moms could be going through menopause and, you know, it it can cause you to be a little bit grouchier than usual, etc. And, you know, maybe less tolerant of of things. So just an awareness of it might help tidy their rooms a bit better. So all of those things, the family unit and wider society, I think, needs to be aware. Now, I think it's trickling out there. But initially, you know, as we spoke earlier, it's a a little bit more among the women themselves and book clubs, etc. But I think you know, if we get a bit more comfortable talking about it in general and not to, you know, stigmatise it either. You know, it's a phase people are living and working through this. Mm. And, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be making it into an illness. It It, it is different for everybody. Some people yeah. do suffer significantly. Some just need some support going through it, but otherwise are, you know, living very healthy and, and yeah, productive lives. And I think the other thing is, Women's lives now are very, you know, are different to grandmothers who may have been in the home more, may have had more restrictive lives, if you like. But women in their 50s now are, you know, working, they're holding on responsible jobs, they're, you know, do, doing a lot and they want to continue doing a lot. They yeah. don't want to be leaving the workplace. And we do have evidence that percentage of people will leave the workplace in their 50s and some of that could be due to the you know the transition with menopausal symptoms but with the right supports they could be yeah, continue on otherwise we're losing people who have a huge amount to of value to institutions to corporations to small businesses and that would be a shame so i yeah. think you know normalizing talk and supporting people to get through those few years and to stay in the workplace force until they, they want to leave is is would be hugely beneficial to society. Yeah, absolutely. And we know the menopause is inevitable. So if we were to talk for all women, right, it's inevitable. We everybody has to go through it at some stage. If you want to talk about and you spoke a little bit about perimenopause and the mm. symptoms. Now, when I was preparing for this podcast, there were so many symptoms and I don't want to frighten our listeners, <laughs> but there are a lot of symptoms mm. and we all are familiar with, you know, the hot flushes and maybe anxiety, but there are so many more. So maybe if you wouldn't mind, Kiva, can you talk us through a few, just a few, because like I say, I don't want to skip the the rest of the podcast will be nothing but me reading out a list of symptoms. (laughs) Symptoms, Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really important to start with that and say that although it's obviously excellent that we've seen, you know, so much information and so much talk about this. The worry is that we terrify the living yes, exactly. Jesus out of people when they get to their 30s and they're thinking, oh, my God, this awful thing is looming ahead of me. It's not. And there's at least 20 percent of women whose periods will stop. That's their symptom. And other than that, they feel well. Also, not everybody gets the health changes. So not everybody going through menopause is going to get a heart attack in their 50s or 60s or get bone density lost to the point that they have osteoporosis. Yeah, it's not universal. It's individual. Other factors play into it. Your genetics, your lifestyle, other you know, a bit of luck, maybe other things play into it. But there are seventy to eighty percent of women who will get other symptoms. Yes. And what's really interesting, I think, in the last decade is, and in particular in North America, they started to talk more about 
perimenopause than menopause. One of the frustrating things we find is that women will come in in their mid 50s, their periods have stopped. And obviously we're more interested in the women who are having symptomatic or having symptoms that are impacting their quality of life. They're the women we really want to talk to and intervene mm. with. And they come in saying, I've had symptoms for 10 years or Why five years. Why do they wait so long? A lack of information. That's on us, yeah. I think. And it's only like this change in the level of like, the you know, menopause being in the zeitgeist that has only happened in the last mm. five or six years. So it's not women's fault. It's our fault. And but thankfully, look, we're sitting here today. We're doing this. This is all part of why that worm is turning slowly, you know. But it's interesting because we, we've, you know, kind of growing evidence that intervening in perimenopause for women who are symptomatic Yes. can be helpful. And even from a health point of view, so I think it's helpful to split it into two things. There's symptoms that women experience and then there's long-term health changes. And they're two different things. The symptoms, like you said, as long as your arm, do you know, because you've estrogen receptors everywhere pretty much. But if you were to pick out the ones that we hear the most about, one is mood and emotional symptoms. And lots of women experience anxiety, for example, for the first time in their life as they go through perimenopause in particular. And it's because they're strapped into a bit of a hormonal roller coaster. So their brain may have tolerated fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone previously, but those fluctuations have become more than little bumps. Now they're kind of a big up yeah. and down roller coaster effect. And that creates changes in mood, changes in irritability and anxiety. Again, not for everyone, but for a significant percentage. The other thing that we hear commonly is cognitive changes. And that's an area that we're becoming increasingly interested in, that you're seeing more research happening in, which is, you know, welcomed. And it's it's biological. It isn't in your head. It isn't just a feeling of I've gone a bit sort of baby brainish, like, you yeah. know, I'm a bit muzzy in my head. It's genuine biology. You can see changes on PET scans of people's brains that mm. relate to their serum estradiol, their estrogen levels. So we know there's something happening. And commonly that manifests as verbal fluency. So being able to find the right word, think of someone's name, that kind of thing, and short term memory. And that then has a knock on impact on confidence. And if you're in the yes, workplace, as Kleena has mentioned, yeah. this is why we see women exit the workplace. It's not just hot flushes and night sweats, which mm. I should also mention. They're common. But I would hear more often, it's the brain fog affects me more. I live with the hot flushes. I cannot live with this feeling that my brain is fuzzy. It's not functioning like it used to. Some physical symptoms too, obviously hot flushes and night sweats, but joint aches and pains are the other quite common thing. And then you have genitourinary symptoms of menopause. Mm -hmm. So things like bladder symptoms, like needing to pee maybe a bit more frequently, increased incontinence, increased urinary tract infections, uh, vulvovaginal dryness, painful sex. So they're all the kind of genitourinary symptoms and everything yeah. in between and lots of other weird and wonderful. So I think, Kleena, you wanted to come in there on the whole area of symptoms. Yeah. So, I mean, as Quavia said, there's a, quite a lot of symptoms, but not everybody will get all of the symptoms. So that's important to point out. It's a mixed bag. And some people will recognise, oh, hot flushes, night sweats. Yes, that's menopause. I know what that's about, but not necessarily realise that having to, having had urinary tract infections is potentially a symptom as well. One of the things I see quite frequently that people don't link up would be sleep problems. So typically complaint of waking up at three or four in the morning and then not being able to get back to sleep till, you know, five or six. And, and obviously that's a huge knock on effect on life and work and everything. And then adding to any other symptoms, you know, as we spoke about the brain fog, anybody's missing a few yeah. hours sleep isn't, you know, going to be feeling great. So I think it's important to also explain that that is a physical symptom. This is not it's not something that can necessarily you know, prevent. There are things you can do to help your sleep. So yeah. sleep before 12 o'clock at night is important. So getting to bed a bit earlier, making sure that you don't have screen time, avoiding tea and coffee, all of those will help. But just an explanation to people that, that you know, this is yeah. actually part of the menopause, you know, that you're not, you're, you know, you're not being dramatic about this. And this is a real and significant symptom It is, yeah. you know, is helpful. And people, you know, do find that reassuring that they're not the only person going through that, you know. So but again, the wider audience of, of you know, the family, 
work colleagues and you know of course you know if if they know somebody's been awake for a couple of hours during the night uh, would have a bit, yeah. bit bit of sympathy you know so and yeah. it is it is all of those symptoms that people do think with the brain fog like what is wrong with me why can't mm-hmm. I cope with this situation they may be of an age that the kids are if they've had children that their children are maybe now 12 13 and they're just about getting settled with the kids, the kids are getting more independent and all of a sudden they have these anxieties and these sleepless nights and it just seems if they don't recognise it, they're probably thinking, well, everybody else can cope and why can't I? But maybe behind it all, everybody else is not necessarily coping either. So one of the other symptoms that I've heard people mention is headaches and that's really difficult for people as well, isn't it? Yeah. And often it's not something that they recognise, you know, it's put down to stress, it's put down to work, it's put down to, you know, other things going on. So and it can happen before the actual menopause. So in the perimenopause or the few months coming up to it. But it it, it can happen for a subset of people that they do get headaches associated with those oestrogen fluctuations and that, you know, sometimes then when things are, you know, addressed, if you like, and they're on HRT, that, yeah. that, you know, things improve and you go, oh, that was all to do with menopause. I can't Imagine. believe it. You yeah. know. Now, that's slightly different to somebody who has maybe had a history of migraine, you know, that's that all their lives. So they may be a different cohort, but those for, with new onset headaches and, uh, and migraines potentially it can be all part of the menopausal subset. And, you know, so it is important to talk to their doctor because they may think they're not suitable for HRT. Yeah. And in fact, it could be just the thing that they need, you know. Yeah, so um, so women with a history of migraines absolutely can take hormone therapy. We do try and use only the transdermal products for mm. their oestrogen. So this is your patch, your gel or spray. We try and avoid using oral oestrogen, the tablet form, because of that small increased risk of blood clotting and stroke. But if you have a history of migraines, you can take HRT is the bottom line. I think that's a really important message. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. So, Peep, the first call would be to go to your GP. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good place to start. Yeah. And I think sitting down and having that conversation is important if you have symptoms that are bothering you. But I suppose we would lean towards saying, look, if you're still having periods, don't feel well, then I can't go and talk to yes. someone. And I think that's maybe an antiquated approach that we still see trickle in a little, that people will say, you know, I'm still having periods, that therefore I'm not menopausal and I won't, I'm, mm. there's no legitimate reason for me to go and talk to someone and sure, I can't be treated anyway because I'm still mm. having periods. So that's not true. And mm. getting that message across is really important, even from a health perspective. You know, looking at early intervention for things like bone density, and that doesn't mean HRT necessarily. Mm. It means educating and having a discussion early about planning for your long term health before you get to menopause is really important. It's opportunistic on our part. We like getting women in their 40s and saying, "Okay, we know that this change that is coming and the ultimate loss of oestrogen is going to have an impact on your long term health. So Mm -hmm. let's have a chat about that. Or, you know, have you risk factors? Is there a family history for cardiovascular disease or breast cancer or bone density loss and osteoporosis? Do you smoke? What's your blood pressure? You know, have you had your cholesterol checked? Going through all of that is really helpful early. So don't Mm. wait until you're on your hands and knees with symptoms and crawling in or until your periods have stopped. Come in when you're symptomatic. Kiva, just talking about that and people not coming in at an earlier stage, do you think it's part of it because people don't want to admit they're getting older, that they have the menopause, that they're or they're starting the menopause and that we're an ageist society that we just don't want to get old and we don't want to admit that we're getting old? What do you think about that, Kleena? I think there's two things. Yeah, you, you might be onto something there, but also I think women are very busy. Okay, mm-hmm. women do, we know they do the majority still of the domestic work. They do the majority of child rearing. So for many people, the 40s is a, you know, very busy mm-hmm. time. And we know for various reasons, people have been starting families a little bit later. So there's an awful lot of picking, dropping, you know, looking after everybody else, I would say, and not actually having the time to you know, prioritise to go for themselves. So there, I think that's definitely a bit of it. I think, you know, as Quiva said, it is maybe a time to look at things in a positive. This is now a time to get a once over look at everything, not just the menopausal symptoms, mm. but, you know, where am I with, you know, general risk factors, etc. And then look at things going forward. The other way to frame the menopause is in in. There's a bit of a positive to it. I mean, when we're looking back again, you know, with the evolutionary side of things, 
now it's, uh, you know, once you do get to the menopause, the risk of, you know, an unwanted pregnancy or something like that is gone. So there can be a certain freedom to that. Yeah, of course. And certainly in some cultures, menopause is kind of venerated and, you know, women of menopause age have a certain stature in that, you know. So I think, you know, can be somewhat liberating. And if people look at it through that lens, then we can turn that yeah. without, you know, all the doom and gloom about the symptoms, but also, listen, you know, things are changing now and maybe it's it's time for a bit of focus on woman's health and, and going forward. So I think we've a bit to go there, but I, I don't think we should be shaming people or, or giving out that, you know, that they haven't come forward. Some of it is lack of recognition. It's only now that there really is enough information out there. So, you know, whatever time people present Mm. It's fine. You know, if, if if somebody comes to me and says, oh, I should have come a, a, a year or two ago. I'm saying, but you're here now. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. Let's let's go from yeah. there and to look at it uh, positive and talk through it. So I, I think yeah. we can kind of frame it in, in a more positive way. No, than, I think that's really you know. good. I think that's really good, Kleena, because it does sound, you know, a lot of doom and gloom. I just wanted to go back to the bone health mm. then. When we're talking about bone health, are we talking about taking vitamin D or what would be a good, I suppose, good... Yeah, for people so you, to do. You, you look at basics, so remove okay. things that are going to exacerbate bone density loss. So we see a rate of about 2% per year bone density loss in the first five years after your period stop. Now that's average. And then it kind of slows down after that. So there's a fairly dramatic sort of, you know, period of bone density loss after the period stop. Yeah. So what you want to do is look at risk factors. Smoking is the obvious one and smoking is going to make bone density loss more dramatic, reduces down your ability to get to your peak bone density in your late 20s, early 30s. So stop, well, reducing, but ideally stopping smoking if mm. you can, reducing caffeine. And then we talk to everyone about increasing their weight bearing exercise, increasing their vitamin D intake for most women in Ireland. And so that's really from Halloween to Paddy's Day is what we'd recommend that most women should be taking a vitamin D supplement yeah. over the counter from your pharmacy. Keep it simple and plenty of dietary calcium. You're aiming for about a thousand milligrams a day, which is about three to four servings of something rich in calcium, which... Okay, and again, you can get that over or you can just buy it over the pharmacy. And, and it doesn't need to be the most expensive brand. Okay. There's an awful lot of branding yeah. and, you know, expensive vitamin supplements. There's and loads. So, you know, you can, the sky's the limit with regard to yeah. what you pay. But yeah. actually, if it says vitamin D and it's just vitamin D on the box and it's, you know, five euro, that is perfectly That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Now, yeah. what I would say is it doesn't work well in the cupboard. That's <laughs> my husband has said to me, you know. <laughs> you have to take it. Yeah, he said, that's not working that well up there now you know <laughs> yeah. so so yeah. yeah you have to take it you know and also think of you know calcium in your diet so yogurts milk and that and those who maybe for whatever reason don't take that in the diet need to be aware of that maybe from a slightly earlier age of yeah. their you know vitamin D and calcium in the diet so just the calcium yeah. they both work together so it's important to, yeah. to keep that up I'm just thinking I've got three daughters and one of the things is I need to talk to my daughters about the menopause yeah. not maybe yeah. just not today or anything but yeah. you know because maybe if mothers start talking to their daughters a little bit more and take some of the fear out of it and explain like you said, some of the positives about it as well, then, you know, at an earlier age that they're ready for it, you know. And there has and been research looking in at like okay. cultural differences yeah. with menopause. Mm -hmm. And and some of that research would show that in societies and cultures where we're more embracing of aging. Yeah. And as Kleena pointed out, where there's kind of a stature associated with it or there's positives associated with with aging in general. Yeah. That women tend to be less symptomatic going yeah. through their menopausal years. That's unbelievable, really. Yeah. And I'm sure, I, I, well, I'm just saying I'm not sure, but I'm just wondering, would that be more so around things like mental and emotional well-being? Yeah, actually, I'm going to demand that now a little yeah. bit more respect <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it is reframing things and yeah. not seeing everything about aging if you're female yeah. as a negative. And I think some of that empowerment that we're doing with discussing things like this helps towards that. It helps women feel less, yeah. hopefully less frightened, not more frightened of of what's coming and empowers them to know, look, if I am symptomatic, I don't just have to put up yeah, with it. Yeah. And if I'm not symptomatic, well, then fantastic. And I focus on my long term health. Not blaming women for being symptomatic. Yes. You know, is really important. Yeah. I know. There, Did you want to come in? Yeah, yeah come in there, there are some symptoms, you know, that can occur maybe three or four years down. So you may get through the, you know, what you feel the menopause is without the hot flushes and night sweats and mm. think, oh, I've, I've done well, lucky enough. 
but there can be some that creep up then later, sometimes with recurrent urinary tract infections, sometimes vaginal dryness and difficulties then with sex. Yeah. And because they haven't had the hot flushes and night sweats again, you know, the link isn't made that this is actually due to, you know, lack of estrogen in the body. Yeah. And so those women, I find, can sometimes delay asking for help because A, they might find it a bit embarrassing and also they find those symptoms a bit minor and they don't know how to categorize them yes. as such. So, But there is help available for those type of symptoms. So it is important. They are a subset of menopausal symptoms and they deserve equal recognition in that. You know? And what kind of treatments then, when you're talking about sexual health for women, then what kind of treatments during menopause would be well, for, for those particular ones, sometimes, you know, if a woman hasn't needed your regular HRT, if you like, and, and Quiva may talk uh, about those in, in a while, but, you know, or for people who don't want to be on the patches and things, mm. but they may have very specific urinary tract or, or vaginal symptoms. Sometimes just some local estrogen can be life changing for okay. them and some advice about lubrication, etc. Yeah. So the sex life isn't completely down the tubes, which, yes. you know. Unfortunately, some people think, oh, that's it now. That's, you know, that's over there. And, you know, you have to say, no, you're, you're young yet. There's no reason for that to stop if you, if you don't wish it to. So it, it really is important that people are aware that they can present with those symptoms and ask I know. for help. And you, you know. see, that might be a symptom that people just are embarrassed. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, you know, that's over there. That's, you know. I'm that's gone now for me. And, and that, that can, so you know, right, that can be re have a real effect on confidence and relationships and uh, and all of that. So it yeah. is important to say that there is help out there. Yeah. And just, I suppose, talking about HRT, maybe Kiva, do you want to go through the options of that? Because it sounds quite complicated or there are, there are lots of options, mm. but it, it's not as straightforward as just to having a patch or a bit of gel or something. It's, it's, it is quite complex, isn't it? It can be. Yeah. yeah, it can be. I mean, hormone therapy has been around a really long time and has evolved over that time, thankfully. So, you know, the kind of backbone, the foundation of HRT or MHT, as we're starting to technically call okay. it. Yeah, menopausal hormone therapy. So it's oestrogen. That's what we're providing most women in perimenopause for someone who is experiencing symptoms, the reason we give HRT or the reason we give oestrogen, which it sounds kind of counterproductive because mm. we open with telling them, oh, look, you know, you're often making too much oestrogen. And then I'm going to treat that by giving you more oestrogen sounds really ridiculous. But the basis of that is that we're trying to calm down what is a kind of chaotic hormonal fluctuations, chaotic, okay. you know, hormonal fluctuations in the background. And sometimes providing a little bit of consistent baseline of oestrogen seems to have this effect of making everything a little bit calmer and settle some of those fluctuations down and symptoms improve. They don't resolve for everybody, but they improve. That's what we're aiming okay. for. And in women who have stopped having periods whose own, or they've had their ovaries removed, for example, oestrogen provides them, I suppose, some relief from symptoms. We want to get them above a threshold where their symptoms are better and where we don't see as much of an impact on things like bone density or, or heart health, for example. Mm. So that's the oestrogen. All of your good stuff is coming from oestrogen. We have to give you a second hormone called progestogen if you still have your womb. Or if you have a history of endometriosis, for example, okay. even if you've had a hysterectomy. Mm. So what we're trying to do with the progestogen is protect the endometrial cells, the womb cells, from the stimulating effect of oestrogen. Because we know that women who take oestrogen on its own, if they still have a womb, have a, quite a marked increased risk of womb cancer. So the progestogen protects you or reduces that risk. That's called combination HRT because it's a combination of the two hormones. Mm. And then there's various ways that where it gets complicated is how we deliver those hormones to you. So some women will take oestrogen as a tablet, which is absolutely fine. And they're really convenient. Obviously, much easier to take a tablet than have to like yeah. lather yourself in gel or apply patches or whatever it might be. So tablets are often more straightforward and they're often something that people are used to. They might have been on the pill or something in yeah. the past. So the downside of the tablets is that there's a small increased risk of blood clotting and stroke. Okay. And certainly for women, as they go past 50, we see this small baseline increase of your risk going up anyway with aging. Mm. We don't want to add to that. 
women with migraines, women who smoke, women who have a history of blood clotting and so on. These are women we really want to avoid oral oestrogen for and that's where your patches and your gels and your spray Uh, come in. So there's three products. There's patches, there's a gel and there's a spray. They all deliver oestrogen but they're all delivering the same oestrogen. So whether you end up on a gel or a patch, totally individual. So I don't have a preference. I'm always asked like which is best? It's whichever suits you is best. In terms of risk profile, all that kind of thing, they're all exactly the same. So it is a balancing act, though, between the oestrogen and the progesterone. Kind of. The progestogen, we have progestogen, a... Progestogen, sorry. Yeah. So there's different types of progestogen. We commonly use micronized progesterone, which is basically a kind of what they call a body. I, I hate the term body identical, but technically that's what... Yeah, that's a term that I've mm. been hearing a lot lately, this body identical. Why do you not like it? Because I feel it's a bit buzzwordy and I think okay. women... And sometimes they'll read about it as if it's completely safe and carries no risk, which isn't true right. either. So it's just something that's mimicking what your ovaries produce. When your ovaries produce progestogen, they make progesterone and we're giving you progesterone. So it's a type okay. of progestogen, okay. like different brands of washing powder. So there's different ways of delivering that progestogen to you. There's progesterone, which is often a capsule that you take by mouth or can be inserted vaginally. There's the marina coil, which has loads of benefits as well. And that will provide protection for your womb for five years as part of HRT. There's other progestogen tablets as well. And uh, so, yeah, so we've loads of different options and that's where it becomes complicated. It's this kind mm. of working out what combination. Yeah. We have a minimum amount of progestogen that we have to provide your womb in order to reduce that risk. So you can't go below a certain level with the progestogen or we're not giving you that protection. But as your oestrogen goes up, if we're giving you more and more and more oestrogen, which we shouldn't, but if we, for some women, they require higher doses, we have to match that with a a slightly higher dose of progestogen, again, just to provide that basic protection for the lining of the womb. Okay, so it is quite complicated. I'm glad that you're well qualified in (laughs) prescribing all of that because it is quite complicated. But like you keep saying, there are benefits to a lot of these things. There's other benefits to the hormones as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a small reduction in cardiovascular risk. Okay. It's not dramatic. So if you're someone who has no symptoms, you've normal bone density, you shouldn't go on HRT just to reduce your cardiovascular okay. risk. So its principal action is to improve your symptoms. That's what we're using it for. Now, in women under 60 who have a diagnosis of osteoporosis, we can use HRT to treat that osteoporosis. Outside of that, it's either that you're very symptomatic and we're trying to treat that Or women who are under the age of 45 who have stopped having periods or have had their ovaries removed, they get more like they get considerably more benefit than risk with HRT. Yeah. And I mean, I know some of these sound like complex cases that you look after in the complex menopause clinic. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Cleanie, did you want to come in there with any of that? Yeah, as Quiva said, it's really important for those having menopause at a younger age than expected. So if we say the average age is 51, you know, if you are under the age of 45, you know, that's that's younger than than your peers. And then there are a small proportion of people under the age of 40, you know, where they're premature ovarian and failure and there can be reasons for that genetic reasons they're in a different category and we really would recommend HRT for those because yeah. you know there's a gap of about 10 years where they're yeah. losing out there are some people who will present maybe at the age of 60 and just sort of say I think I should be on HRT because yeah. I've heard so much about it and should I be on it mm. and the answer is if they're not having symptoms, really, we wouldn't be recommending it at that stage, you know, because Mm. probably the risks are higher than the benefits at that point. So it really is, we're down to kind of individualised care plans for for people. So what your friend is getting may not be what you get. So really, you know, not to be comparing notes necessarily. And and what we spoke there about the different ways of administering the HRT. So again, that could be individualised, you know, what Mm. one person's what suits one person and their lifestyle may not be the same for somebody else, you know. And I suppose the principle is we want to get the, you know, lowest amount of oestrogen that is solving the symptoms. Yes, it's effective. Um, And then it is really important to explain to people that, you know, they need the oestrogen and the progesterone because the oestrogen is, you know, what in pregnancy makes your hair good and Mm. shine in people's faces. But the progesterone can sometimes, you know, drop your mood a little bit. So often women find when they're on the progesterone, 
they'd like to be doing without the progesterone. But yeah. unfortunately, it, it doesn't quite work like that. Okay. So particularly for the tablets, it is important that they take the progesterone part yeah. of it. But then if for whatever reason there's been a hysterectomy, then it's oestrogen only is, okay. is needed. So that yeah. can simplify the process there. Yeah. And I just think when we mentioned HRT or that we can't go past it without mentioning the fears that people still have and women still have about taking it. And that study that was done all those years ago and we're still trying to get rid of that fear and the explanation around that. So I'm not sure we... Okay. Do you want to maybe just deal with that, Kiva? Just as simply as you can, because I know it's complex. Okay. So... Yeah, so you got, you have to look at both sides of the fence. There's benefits, as we've mentioned. Mm. So HRT, fantastic, estrogen, fantastic at reducing bone density loss. And again, early intervention, like there's a, a, quite a bit of research showing that, you know, you, your estradiol levels are kind of maintained in perimenopause at the expense of a, another hormone called FSH, which goes up. It's a hormone that your brain releases to control your ovaries or influence your ovaries. And with that rise in FSH, we actually, that's where we start to see the bone density loss happen. So that's before your periods have stopped. And women who are really high risk of osteoporosis or who have osteoporosis, estrogen is a really good way of preventing that bone density loss really at any point. So my point being, I suppose, that it just starts, it starts early is the, is the point, you know. So we know it protects bone. This small reduction in cardiovascular risk has quite a protective effect on our blood vessels and our brain, which is good. I get asked a lot about the dementia impact, which is really controversial. There may be a window of time where we may be able to intervene and slightly reduce dementia risk in a small subset of women with genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's. Like it gets very kind of niche. Yes. And so it isn't an across the board, everyone go on HRT to reduce your dementia risk. That mm. doesn't exist. And actually older women get a small increased risk of dementia if they start HRT beyond 10 years from their menopause. So it's really complicated, you mm. know, and we see we do see a reduction in the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and even in colon cancer, colorectal cancer seems to be reduced as well. None of these are reasons on their own to go on HRT, mm. but just, you know, that's all good. And actually, if you look at the Women's Health Initiative, that study that you alluded to there a second mm. ago, the big study that was done in the 90s, they showed a reduction in all cause mortality. So dying for any reason at all was reduced in the women who had taken HRT. So we know that there is positive health impact. Yeah. Okay, other side of the fence then, we see an increased risk of different things. And the one that most people think of is breast cancer. So that's what I get asked about the most. Yeah, that seems to be. And even even now, people are are very unsure. Which is reasonable. And one of mm. the problems is that breast cancer is common. And we all know women who have been diagnosed with yeah. breast cancer and it is terrifying. Mm -hmm. So if I say anything carries a risk of breast cancer, people are going to be scared. That's, you know, completely rational. The Women's Health Initiative showed an increased risk of breast cancer and other studies since have also shown an increased risk of breast cancer with combination HRT. Okay. So the women who take estrogen on its own, who've had a hysterectomy, may not have the same increased risk. Now, it may not be zero risk, but it is lower. So we're much, we're less concerned with women on estrogen on its own. In fact, the Women's Health Initiative showed a small reduction in breast cancer risk, although that hasn't been replicated in studies since. Okay. So the truth is probably that it's fairly neutral and may carry a very small, but not hugely statistically significant risk of breast cancer. The women who take combination HRT, so your estrogen and progestin, and that's the majority of women that we would see, they do get a small increased risk of breast cancer over the age of 50. So the numbers that we would tend to use would be that we would see about three to four additional breast cancers per thousand women okay. after five years of HRT. Okay. And the longer you are on it, influences the breast cancer risk. So the duration of use. If you're someone who's on HRT for 20 years, because you're getting benefit from it, there is a, you know, you're taking on more breast cancer risk than the person who takes it for five years. Which doesn't mean we take, we can, you know, knock on your door at the five-year mark, yeah. wrestle it from your hands and leave. <laughs> no. But and you it, probably would have to wrestle it from a lot of people's hands. And, and But that's important too. Yeah. So it's all about informed decision-making yes. and shared decision-making. Mm. And there's also an increased risk of side effects. So this is why we're not just willy-nilly throwing everyone in HRT. Absolutely. Because some, now first of all, there's an expense. It's a medication you have to, you know, you have to factor that in. It's a bit of a faff sometimes applying my gel and taking my capsule and doing all of that. So it's an added complication to your day. If you're not getting huge benefit from it. But the biggest thing we'd see is bleeding. Kleena okay. will attest to this, I feel, <laughs> because okay. it's often yeah. on the lap of the gynecologist yeah. that we, so a lot of women get unscheduled bleeding. 
Okay. So they'll take HRT and they might go back down. We, we kind of wake up their endometrium, the lining of the womb. And that causes some frustrating, irritating, breakthrough bleeding that occasionally needs to be investigated. And so you're okay. kind of going down that path unnecessarily. Like it's all due to being on HRT. Yeah. So, you know, there are downsides as well as yeah. upsides. Most women for the first five years of use over the age of 50 will get more health benefit than risk though. And that's really important to, okay. to know. And just talking about the cleaner, the breakthrough bleeding then, do you want to talk around that or what people should look yeah, out for? So when, I suppose, when should people come to get yeah, investigated? So I suppose to look at in the years coming up to the menopause, for some people, their uh, periods get a little scantier. They might miss a, a month, you know, here and there. But for a lot of people, they get heavy bleeding. And so you have a problem where they're, you know, spending seven, ten days, you know, with heavy yeah. bleeding. And that's a real nuisance. And, and that is something we see commonly. Again, there is help for that. So you see some people, you know, some women struggling through it, whereas there is help for it. And some simple things like, you know, medication or the marina coil can help with that. So it is important. It, it, it's certainly really important where the periods get chaotic and so they're not regular. Yeah. So when they're not regular, you know, you really need to be seen. And particularly, you know, when they get heavy and, and unpredictable. That's that's a really uh, important point. And then, you know, if the menopause comes, it can be a relief, you know, and yeah. I, I, see, I see women sometimes they're 53 and they're like, when will it start? Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, so this can stop, this can stop. And, and yeah. so it is can be a relief to people. But for some going on the HRT, you know, then the periods come back and that's not so great or they can be troublesome, you know, unpredictable again. Mm. So and then there's a slight worry that does this mean there's something underlying that is it, it you have to discern is it actually due to just breakthrough bleeding on the HRT or usually there would need to be a scan to check that the lining of the womb hasn't got too thick and if it's above a certain thickness then we have to do more investigation so that's that's another kind yeah. of day's work in that and a, another layer of worry so in some situations you know, that symptoms maybe weren't significant in the first place mm. and the decision might be made, look, I'd prefer not to continue on okay. this HRT anyway. Or, you know, there's a different type of HRT used, but the important thing is to make sure there's nothing uh, worrying underneath it. And the women I would be concerned about that ha have maybe an increased risk of, of something worrying, you know, predisposing to womb cancer or, or, or a precursor to that would be women of a higher weight where there's a family history yeah. and maybe those who haven't had any children. They're what we call risk factors for extra oestrogen in your lifetime. And then if there is abnormal bleeding in the background of HRT, you know, they're, they're okay. people we do want to check out, if you like. So, you see, what I'm hearing from both of you all the time is come to get treatment, come for help, don't just leave things. So would you say in that case, if somebody was having significant oh, bleeding? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, bleeding, absolutely. Get it checked uh, out. Yeah, you don't don't ignore. And just to go back to a, what we were talking about, the breast cancer risk as well. And again, mm. to put it in context, what sometimes, you know, is forgotten is that there are other risk factors that are mm. all around us. And that includes, you know, alcohol and, you know, our country would have quite a high yeah. increase in alcohol. Yeah. And I suppose in the last few years, we've noticed an increased consumption among among women. So that's there in the background. And also mm. weight as well can be a risk factor. So just mm. putting it in context, yeah. you know, that sometimes the, the breast cancer risk is just well, that's the only thing that's giving you breast cancer risk. But there, there are lots be of other. And, you know, there's an opportunity as well for modifiable risk factors for, yeah. for all types of things. So being a healthy weight, getting exercise, all of those things are really important heading into menopause, you know, and yeah. with your bone health, you know, not just relying on the benefits or other of the HRT, yeah, you know, look at the there other, are other things. things that you can do. Yes. And, and I, you know, one of the complaints we would see a lot is is because of the estrogen changes, there is a tendency to put on weight, you know, the bit of tummy yeah, spread the, the and, tummy and, spread and that, that can really yeah. be hard. But again, rather than accepting that and look, we all change as we get older. Nobody is going to look like they were when they were 18. But again, to, you know, sort of say, OK, well, you know, 
that is life to one thing, one extent, but also you can embrace it and say, well, I'm going to get a bit fitter and, you yes. know, feel good in myself. So there are definitely things that can can be done. That you can take control of exactly. yourself and make some changes exactly. to your lifestyle. And yeah. sort of have a, a, a positive mindset yeah. into it that, you know, not not just going to sort of rely on just accepting everything is is yeah. is, is doom and gloom as we I said know. yeah I know that's really weight true. comes up an awful lot in yes. consultations I find understandably because we're a weightist society well, and an ageist society I was just going to say we talked about ageism mm. but you know women are petrified mm. of weight gain and there's most of the research would suggest we actually gain the same amount of weight as men through the same mm. age categories if it's from 45 to 65 most women will gain about one to two pounds per year on average but so will men mm-hmm. and the big difference well, why is why do they get away with it because we change shape mm. uh, so okay. we change the way we distribute that weight whereas men do not okay. so this is where that central weight gain across your tummy happens it kind of exacerbates a lot of the kind of frustration with like I'm waking up and it's not my body this isn't mm. my body and Interesting, it's ha- it's happening because of biology mm-hmm. and genetics. It's not happening because you've changed your lifestyle or you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it can be exacerbated by low mood and poor sleep. We know there's changes in leptin and ghrelin and these appetite hormones with other confounding factors with like poor sleep, for example, which is so common, as Kleena mentioned, mm-hmm. through menopause. And managing them is kind of step number one. So it's not just about mm-hmm. eating less and moving more because that actually doesn't do anything for your weight gain. Uh, you know, addressing your poor sleep, addressing mood factors if they're there, looking at those issues, joint aches and pains that are preventing you Mm -hmm. from going out and and going for a walk or doing that kind of thing. They're step one. Talking to someone about nutrition, making sure that you're well informed is kind of step number two. Not blaming yourself Mm -hmm. is probably the most important step. And like weight is obviously hugely genetic. And I think reaching out for help if you want it is really important too. And I suppose then just on that, because we're drawn to a close shortly, but if where do people go for help with all of these things? Where would you advise or what would you say to them? Well, I, I would say with symptoms, we've said first step is your GP, you know, so yeah. they, they'll more, they'll know you potentially because you've been attending through mm. your life. They'll have a good overall kind of view of the health symptoms. And and then for some people, they will need to go further. As we said, there are complex menopause clinics. They're really for people who maybe have yeah. medical issues that it's not as simple for the GP to advise. So there are some good resources out there and hopefully this will be one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are some some good books out there. Uh, Dr. Deirdre Lundy has written a book. I read a book by Dr. Jen Gunter that I felt was really good. Okay. However, there aren't a huge number in the bookshop. There's probably there you go now. An, There's an opening there for you to write about uh, ladies <laughs> about GAA or you know yeah. <laughs> there's an awful lot more of those kind of topics there but there are some nice ones there and it I think they're useful to read because mm. you can identify with some of the symptoms of and say look all of these you know high profile women have have had these symptoms mm. so that mm. can be helpful to people you know so I think there's a bit about you know, getting the information and then if you have symptoms, asking your GP for advice and then for some people they will need kind of to to, to go to a specialist clinic, but not all. And then for some, it's certainly with regard to kind of bleeding issues, it might be that they go to see a gynecologist referred by their GP, yeah. you know, that, that, that there's a particular issue there. So, OK, that's, the that's summary. great, Kleena. And so, Kiva, You've set up the complex menopause clinic. So I really want to talk to you about that because, like I say, you're going hell for leather with it and you're really trying to help women. Yeah, so we're hoping there's six complex clinics being set up around the country that are hospital based, run by specialists like myself who have an interest in this and the clinic in the Rotunda was established in October 2022 and we're flying it which is great we're GP referrals only so you attend your GP and then they might send a referral directly into us we're increasing to two days a week from next week fantastic congratulations so that's exciting yeah to work through the enormous waiting list that <laughs> we have can um, I just stop you there it was amazing when I spoke to you before the podcast because you said you love your job I do and it's so nice to hear somebody saying that and you can hear it in your voice and both of you you can hear it in your voices when you're talking about it like that you obviously feel like you're doing something really worthwhile so sorry for interrupting yeah, you not back to your clinics but, but I do, two days a week I do love my job actually yeah. and I think that's you know, I don't think that's universal and I feel really privileged mm. to love my job and love the people that I work with. And there's days I drag myself in because I haven't slept and I have small kids and I have two dogs there are a nightmare and all the <laughs> way. But then when I'm in, 
Yeah. And you sit down and you start talking to people. You remember that like, it was actually really interesting. And, and, you know, I get asked a lot about like, God, I kind of do the same thing over and over again. Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting because every person sitting in front of you, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but they are completely individual yeah. and every story is different. And it is such a privilege to be let in the door into someone's life yeah. story, you know, and to help them. So yeah, no, I do love my job. What was the question? You asked me about just the complex saying, clinic. And, and yeah. the complex clinic and the type of people that come to you and, yeah. and not everybody can go to the complex clinic because as we've said, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be managed in a complex No, we clinic. want to help people who can't be managed at a community level with their yes. GP. So that's where our expertise is. So as Kleena mentioned, women with maybe a complex medical history, a history of something like breast cancer or a hormone dependent cancer, women who've had blood clots, women who have struggled to find a HRT that really suits them and their GP is not sure where to go next. They're women that we should see, mm. you know. The other kind of exciting developments, we've recently rebooted the Menopause Society of Ireland, so that's really exciting. So we're hoping to roll that out over the next year. We'll be having an educational meeting in September. So what's that now? What is the So menopause? it's aimed at healthcare professionals, so so okay. medics, doctors, you know, allied healthcare professionals that are, that are in this sphere and myself and Dr. Claire Cromwell, who is based in Cork, are the current chairs. So that's okay. exciting. And then we're hoping ultimately that we'll have a patient arm of this society. So in terms of resources, the women's health concern, which is the patient arm of the British Menopause Society, is excellent and something that women could look up online. Mm -hmm. But hopefully within a year or two, we'll have an Irish equivalent. Oh, fantastic. Mm. And so it's not it's GP referral. It's not self-referral to the complex, to the complex clinics. clinics. Yeah. yeah. And, we and that's understandable. Well, I suppose we have to have some yeah. sort of guardrails on it because otherwise we wouldn't okay. have, we wouldn't be able to see anyone. We'd be so backlogged. So, And that's only set, set up since 2022. The clinic so. in the Rotunda was the second one. The clinic okay. in Hollow Street run by the fabulous Dr. Deirdre Lundy and Dr. Nicola Cochran. That was the first one. Okay. Then we were shortly after that. And then there are four more clinics across the country. Yeah. That's fantastic that, the, that there's so many, there's so much help out there, mm. you know. Did you want to come in there? Yeah. So I suppose a shout out to the Department of Health and the Women's Health Task Force where all that kind of came from really was listening to women and women saying we need more help with regards to the menopause and and actually the Department of Health listened yeah. and so I work with NWIP the National Women's and Infants Programme so we were involved then when trying to get mm. funding for these clinics so you know I think the in Ireland, there's an awful lot, uh, you know, that we can do better. But I think it's to acknowledge when we are heading the right direction. No, you and know? it's great. Yeah. And there are steps. And even with the, well, we did a podcast on the fertility hubs. And so women's health is, and we are making progress. And this, I think sometimes there's so much work going on in the background and it takes a long time to get to this stage. And it's just that it is evolving. So, yeah. you know, some of those clinics have started before others that, you know, there's Cork and there's a hub in Nina for menopause. And, mm. you know, so it is, I suppose, to get equity of access across the country yes. is really important to us in NWIP to get information out there and then to have the resources in place. But, mm. you know, there's a big team of people behind that and, and you know, see a real cohesion in what the Department of Health are trying to do, what the HSE are trying to do and, and really trying to put women's health on the agenda and actually following through on that, which yeah. is is good. So we just need to make sure it's kept on the agenda for the next few I years. I know, I know. <laughs> Clean it. That sounds amazing, though. It is good to to hear so so much positive news. And Kiva, you were saying that you have some information on the website that yep. people can access. Yep. On the Rotunda website itself, we have now, there's a tab, I think, that you click for the menopause service and it will give you information about the clinic, you know, how to be referred, how your GP can refer you, what happens when you come to the clinic, who the team is. Perfect. There's a rather embarrassing photo of all of us, etc. Yeah, there's lots of information there people can check out. Great. Yeah. And I'm sure if people go to hse.ie as well, there'll be a, there'll be a link from there to Absolutely. the clinics as well, which is great. So... I have loads more questions, but I think we're going to, I think we're going to have to have a second <laughs> part episode, two. ladies, <laughs> part two for sure, because I have lots of other friends and questions that I need to ask <laughs> you all. But for the moment, I'd just like to say to our listeners that if anybody would like to get in touch with us about the podcast, please send us an email at www.healthandwellbeing.communications at hse.ie. 
I'd like to really thank both of you for bringing so much energy into the room today and being so positive about all of this and explaining to people that there is help out there. And I think it's just phenomenal the amount of help that there is. But if you just need and just tap into it and not to be afraid to go and get help and not be suffering in silence, you don't have to be a martyr to the cause. And for women not to be afraid and embrace getting older, maybe. As always, we ask you, please share this episode with a colleague or friend who you may think would benefit from it or who may be interested in this topic. And thank you very much for listening.